Uh, Dominic, would you mind shutting those doors for me? Thanks, brother. All right, let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for this morning together, a chance to reflect and discuss and listen to one another, for your word to truly come alive to us, that you give us the grace and the patience to see a way forward in your name of justice and mercy. Amen. Hey, y'all. So when I preach and do a forum on the same day, I either have to choose to do a good forum or to do a good sermon or to promote the forum. I prepared for the forum, but I did not promote it, which is fine. And honestly, small group is, is good for conversation. Hi there, I'm Joshua. Fantastic. They'll make their way in. So what I thought we'd do today is um, I had uh, grander dreams of integrating both Desmond Tutu's work and um, Duquan's uh, work that we're reading, the reparations book. And I, I hope to get to that, some of that at the end. Um, if not, I'm uh, also doing a quiet day this Saturday where um, some of these texts will just kind of uh, set some imaginative space for us there. Um, and just so everyone knows, I'm sure you all, you all are like well informed, um, this Wednesday we're having another uh, evening discussion after the dinner with the Reverend um, Jeff Shellett, who is the uh, chair of the reparations committee for EDAO. He's going to talk about the stuff that the diocese has been doing, his kind of experience with it, and what they have planned uh, for the future. That's this Wednesday at 7. And then in two Wednesdays, one of the authors of the book will be here, of the reparations book, will be here for a uh, evening conversation with the author. Uh, both those should be like really great and informative. Um, what I thought I'd do today is uh, would love to hear, um, for those of you who heard the sermon, uh, some feedback about that or about how this lent on specifically on repair and um, restore has been for you and where we are on that. What I thought I'd do is do a little bit of casting on um, it's an, anach an anachronism to think that we have in the Bible something, um, or at least in the gospel, something approaching uh, reparations. But um, my reading, especially the gospel of Mark, is that these type of things are forefront on Jesus's mind. So a bit of an argument by analogy and to look kind of at some of the specifics for the gospel of Mark. And, um, and then to kind of open it up for some conversation after that. How's it sound? Okay, awesome. Uh, so uh, in Mark, um, Jesus begins, the uh, chapter one is like a day in the life of Jesus. We see Jesus in three very different contexts. 
Um, and when I'm walking through people, when I'm walking people through usually like a confirmation class or a baptism class, what I like to point out is looking at just the first few chapters of Mark um, is to t take a step back at kind of a 30,000-foot level and to see if we can like roughly describe what Jesus is up to. So Jesus' uh, very first action after his baptism, just kind of pa pause on the baptism part. Um, it's, uh, I grew up in the church, you know, and so the baptism of Jesus was like always there. It's, it's, it's a little bit difficult for those of us who have been in the church a long time to look at fresh eyes on the baptism. There's not a lot of content about what the baptism was about. Um, for John, it was the confession and repentance of people's sins. Um, it's interesting to think about what it was for Jesus. What is it that the baptism marks for Jesus? Um, I think my kind of shorthand answer for that, I mean, it's not one that I feel like I've got a full grip around, but in, in um, it, my, my shorthand is that it's the, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's, uh, it's an initiation rite, even for Jesus. Jesus is um, at the baptism, moves immediately to the wilderness for like prayer and reflection, 40 days. This is where we get um, the concept for Lent, uh, not just with Jesus, uh, but of course it mirrors what the Israelites did in the wilderness. And then he goes to Capernaum. First thing he does is he goes into the synagogue and he confronts the people there. The very first thing that Jesus does is confront the powers in the synagogue. Then he heals um, uh, the um, mother of uh, the mother-in-law of Peter. Um, when that works, it says that they bring the whole town to him. Um, uh, he heals widely. Uh, and then he goes out again uh, to, um, he goes out to the wilderness again to pray. Uh, at the very end, there's a, 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 an unusual story for the first chapter, which is Jesus heals a man who has a skin disease. Um, Jesus asks that man not to say anything about it, um, uh, but he goes out uh, and um, and tells the Pharisees or the scribes what had happened, uh, the result of which it says that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly. So right there, I, this is kind of a long way of saying, right in the very first chapter, the conflict is uh, dramatically high. Uh, that Jesus is, in some ways, um, it looks like, uh, oh, what do you call and kind of an outlaw in the country, um, that the authorities are already on the hunt for him. In chapter two, the, um, the drama gets amped up, two more clicks, when uh, he heals um, uh, a man in the synagogue. Let me get the exact, uh, he uh, returns to Capernaum. Um, uh, oh, he's in a house, I'm sorry, he's in a house. It's the paralyzed man. They remove the roof from above him. Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting to see who objects to this. So just kind of like trying to look at it with fresh eyes. It's the um, scribes 
who object uh, to Jesus saying your sins are forgiven? Um, and the question there is, is, is why? I guess, I guess I had thought before really looking at it that the objection from the scribes was that there was like a power play on who had the power to forgive. And Jesus had taken it on himself and they're like, no, you're not in our group. Um, but uh, looking kind of more into the historical context of what forgiveness was like amongst the Jewish uh, population in early Palestine, um, as you all know, in the First Testament, the forgiveness of sins is tied to sacrifice, um, is tied directly to money. Um, it was a way especially in late Judaism, um, before Jesus, it was a way for the temple to raise money um, in the, in the, in, from uh, the region of the country. When Jesus heals this man, um, ostensibly from the power of God alone, without an exchange of money, he is directly targeting the, their pocketbooks. That in a way, because there's lots of healings. The healings are not this like um, completely uh, unique thing for early Palestine. And to have such an outsized reaction from others to witness a healing is unusual. Um, what the gospel implies by their outsized reaction, they call it blasphemy. Blasphemy is what Jesus is eventually crucified for in the end. So to charge him with blasphemy is to threaten his life. Why they have such an outsized reaction is in part explained by Jesus um, uh, doing something like money relief to the poor. So in the very beginning, uh, Jesus is confronting the religious authority and their power. That, in part, has to do with um, both the authority question, who has the authority, and also uh, with money. Um, one of my favorite stories is... Uh, is at the end of chapter two, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? How he entered the house of God when Abathar was high priest and ate the bread in the presence of God? which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. So, and he said to them, the Sabbath is made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Notice here again, we have a story about material need of people. The Bible, uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark deals on both a symbolic level and kind of like a, a, a real 
believable story level. Um, the Pharisees, the Pharisees bring up here for the first time the question of what is lawful and what is good. Look at what the disciples doing. It is not lawful for them to pluck heads of grain um, on the Sabbath. That begins for the next several chapters, Jesus's discourse on what is the law. They want to challenge a very specific um, aspect of the law, namely what can be done with the Sabbath. Jesus pulls back from that and gives several kind of uh, discourses and stories about reorienting ourselves to what the law truly is. And in this story, uh, the story of the grain heads, the disciples picking heads of grain, um, just taking a step back from it, what we see Jesus doing is Jesus saying, you have come up with this law, it's one of the great principles for which um, both the Protestant and the Catholic churches often try to remind themselves, and that is uh, churches and religious communities come up with great rules for discipline and prayer and collective worship, but that we must always remember that the Sabbath is made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. It's like one of the um, uh, paradoxical tensions that our faith is fundamentally about um, uh, grace, um, uh, and then about the, the, the how do we worship together part, uh, how do we live together, grace first. The short answer is Jesus saying, you have these great laws, you have these great customs, the people around you are hungry. Their hunger, their need for material assistance outweighs and um, overcomes the legal structures that you have. The things that you could do on the Sabbath are much closer to what we consider to be like legal code. They're not like sometimes you go to church on Sundays, you know, it's personal choice. It's like uh, they were breaking the law by what they did. Um, and uh, Jesus does not... Um, uh, I'm going to get stuck up on this, but... Um, Jesus uh, says, like, I, uh, have you never read um, what uh, David did, right? This kind of appeal to a larger principle, which is namely, when his, when his um, friends were hungry, uh, he went and gave them something to eat, even when that violated uh, ostensibly a cultural taboo. Isn't this great? Okay, I'm going to talk for just a minute longer. Um, and uh, then stop because the, the questions are always the best part of this for me. Chapter one, Jesus immediately heads for confrontation. In chapter two, he amps up the drama. In chapter three, it falls off a cliff. Very first sentence of chapter three. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. They were watching him, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious authorities, to see whether, he, that was my gloss, to see whether he would cure them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Jesus asked the man to come forward. He said to them, he asked the man to come forward who has the withered hand. He turns to the scribes and the Pharisees. 
and he begins the discourse on the law. He says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? And what they say? <laughs> they were silent. They were silent. But you're right, Charlotte, because we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, it says that they were silent. The silence there is really interesting uh, because Jesus was silent when he was accused uh, in front of Pilate. There's probably a, um, a uh, I can't remember what the fancy English professors say, but like when you've got story A and then the inverse of it, uh, it's probably meant to mirror each other. Namely, what was that? <laughs> he said, she said, thank you, John. Just what I was, just the fancy phrase I was looking for. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it, it very likely is uh, to mirror the kind of uh, the holiness of Jesus's silence and the, the weight and gravity of it and the kind of emptiness and cowardice of uh, these religious authorities. It says they were silent. And so uh, uh, Jesus says, stretch out your hand, his hands restored. And it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians. Um, the Herodians, the party of Herod, the aristocracy of Galilee, against him, how to destroy him. Oh, right there. This is like the third story in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, the religious class, the aristocratic class of Galilee, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, is out to figure out how to kill him. Again, we have an outsized response to something that is pretty normal and typical for uh, ancient Palestine, namely the kind of miraculous healing of someone. Uh, Charlotte. Uh, so at the end, um, they go out. <laughs> uh, they go out. The, the Pharisees go out with the Herodians against them to conspire him. They do not answer in their words. They answer in their actions. Is it better to save a life or to kill? At the end of the story, they're out on the path to kill. Uh, then we get the 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 longest discourse, the longest um, Jesus' sermon in the fourth chapter. And here's where I'm going to end. Um, Jesus does the parable of the sower. And I just want to point out a couple like really important salient things about it. Uh, first of all, he does the parable of the sower, which is um, the seed that falls on a path and the birds eat it up. The seed that falls on the rocky ground um, uh, that uh, uh, takes root but not deeply and then withers and dies when the sun rises. Uh, and then the seed that falls among the thorns, uh, which ha has a much better chance of living but doesn't, and then the good seed. And then the disciples are like, uh, we don't get this. <laughs> like, well, we don't get any of that. And Jesus says, if you don't understand this parable, then you won't understand any of the parables. And I read that, and I thought, oh, shoot, I'm not going to understand any of the parables uh, because it's cryptic. It's one of the few places the disciples go, like, Jesus, we're going to need more here. And Jesus gives an explanation. And um, it's actually really interesting, I think, from, like, uh, Episcop Episcopalian um, standpoint, which is the, the, the seed that falls on a path, um, they have 
Jesus does not imply any kind of um, moral failing from those people, the, the seed that falls on a path. Uh, they, they never really heard it. Uh, so, like, it, of course, it's not going to last in them. In fact, the, the moral obligation on that part, Jesus gives to Satan. Satan comes away and takes it, takes it from them. Um, like, they had no chance to hold on to it themselves. And um, for, like, my Baptist friends and some of my conservative Catholic friends who spend a lot of time um, condemning the uh, unbelieving masses— this is definitively not the picture that Jesus um, uh, paints for those who are not following the word. It's uh, through no fault of their own. And then the last thing I want to say, which I think is just so cool what Jesus does, is um, the seed that falls on the thorns, Jesus says, they, they received it with joy, but then when trouble or persecution arose, immediately they fell away, right? And I, like, I think, I'm in that group, <laughs> you know, like probably. Um, like I'm doing good till I get tortured and then I'm out, um, uh, <laughs> you know. And again, there's like no moral failing here. Jesus is like, look, you know, um, uh, they got to the point of torture and they were done. Um, so yes, I can relate to that story. And then, and this is the, the great kicker, um, which is that money and the question of status and wealth and justice are woven into every story of the gospel. The, the third, the hardest group, uh, the group that in some ways uh, fails the greatest or most profoundly, Jesus says, and others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the age and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. In Jesus' mind, you've got those who hear, but then they get blown off the path. That's like the first level. The second level are those who fall away after being tortured and persecuted. The hardest level the most profound level of stumbling for the church will be the lure of wealth, the desire for other things. Okay, so taking a step back, um, reading these first, just the first three chapters, first four chapters of Mark, uh, it feels to me that Jesus is grappling with a type of evil and negligence that has so permeated the culture that none of the religious or secular authorities have any concept of it, that it happens out in plain view. Jesus walks in to the place that he believes is righteous and holy and good and says, even though you can't see it, even though you can't name it, even though you are ostensibly in the right place, the way that you have fundamentally oriented your town, your society, your house of worship, it is a blasphemy to God. 
hopefully putting it in that way um, explains the outsized response uh, that he got, especially challenging um, the, uh, the religious authorities on their, in the, the, the aristocracy on uh, the amount of wealth that they had uh, compared to uh, the poor in their midst and their disregard for them. So is that exactly reparations? Like obviously not, um, but the kind of questions that I am reading in the reparations book, uh, the kind of questions that Desmond Tutu um, asked so penetratingly in South Africa were these type of questions, which is how can we address the hardest issue? one that has so permeated how we live and think in our culture, um, that, that addressing it will cause outrage, um, that addressing it will lead to ostracization. Um, uh, I skipped over the part where Jesus' family comes to confront him. They're just scared. Uh, they're scared that he's gonna get himself killed. And that's where Jesus famously, in my mind, says, um, who are my mother and my brother and my sister? Whoever does the will of God is my brother, mother, and sister. It is not based on ideological allegiance, religious allegiance, blood allegiance. Whoever does the will of God, that's Jesus' answer to the question of the law. Whoever does the will of God is in my new tribe. Um, so, in my mind, all of that is analogous to what our church is doing, namely asking um, kind of one of the hardest questions, uh, a question that has tripped up, as I said in my sermon, um, our recent ancestors, uh, uh, the last 400 years of our country, uh, which has done so many truly great and uh, amazing things for the progress of individual and collective rights, but has um, failed in such a system, systematic way on uh, race. So in my mind, uh, the gospel is deeply in conversation with this project, and I invite your response. Um, small questions, big questions. Yeah, John. And if you can't make it to the mic, I'm just going to repeat what you asked me. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yep. Yep. Yes. Yes. Just Jesus. So, so the gospel tells us. Uh, so, um, yeah, here it goes. Um, <clears throat> in that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up from the water, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my son, the beloved, of whom I'm well pleased. 
and immediately he sent him out into the wilderness. So uh, it, 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 unlike the transfiguration, which is the kind of like middle part, which reflects a lot of the baptism, where it was uh, seen in some way uh, by Peter and James, um, nobody else responds to the voice but Jesus. Uh, it, and it, it, it's open to our imaginations on, on, on what that might have been like. So, but the question I heard from you is, who is this person of Jesus? And so when I'm leading, when I'm starting with, um, uh, again, an, rites of initiation with people who are interested in baptism or confirmation, the story that I came up with uh, growing up, and of course I, only, I understood the best I could, but with a child's mind, and so I'm always kind of curious if I had like redone my, um, my early religious experience as an adult, if it would have appeared more nuanced than it did to me as a child. Um, so I'm trying to give some grace there to my uh, uh, wonderful elders uh, who brought me up in the church. But the story that I often heard is that Jesus is fundamentally opposed to those who are not um, in the club, in the Christian, in the church club, who like have the right words and are, have got the right sounds down. Um, but in fact, looking at the early gospel, Jesus is going into those uh, religious places of um, worship and confronting them at the most principled point. Um, it, that, that would be the analog is us, is the church. That Jesus is causing strife for them. Um, uh, uh, strife over what? Um, not what so many of the stories that I grew up with about the things that God cares about. Um, Jesus is again and again and again confronting a society that is um, marginalizing people for their poverty, for their physical ailments, um, and for their, what I'm going to again anachronistically call their um, ethnicity. Um, when these groups uh, get uh, ostracized from uh, the synagogue, from the temple, Jesus raises holy hell with those authorities. That uh, is part of, uh, so uh, Jesus often uses not the term Messiah to describe himself, but the Son of Man. Son of Man is a phrase that comes from Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, an apocalyptic image. Um, and, you know, th th these things are, uh, this, this, this one in particular, the Son of Man, is something that is, is not something that I'm going to be able to, to do a great job describing and is greater than I understand or appreciate. But roughly, the Son of Man in Daniel is, is the person who um, rules with justice. The person who rules with justice. Hence, Jesus bringing up again and again the true nature of the law, redefining it from the parochial practices of those who are in power to something greater, but that is always singularly attached to um, uh, meeting the material needs of those who are hungry. Like again and again and again. Hey, y'all, I, I can hear you back there. Could you just thank you. Appreciate it. Glad you're here. Um, okay, what else we got? Uh, the, just pull back one second while you're forming a thought. Um, 
My sense is that I'm trying to, as uh, both Desmond Tutu does and uh, Duquan and the other author of the reparations book, try to um, string together our long-time parish in the last few years consideration about justice, race, reparations, with this uh, very um, essential thing that's happening in the gospel, uh, as deeply connected with our uh, faith, uh, not as something that we are pouring on top of it. Uh, how does it strike you? Yeah, Elizabeth. I'm not going to be able to repeat all this, Elizabeth. That Christian opposition to slavery largely came not out of the institutional Christian church, but out of what they call parachurch organizations like the American Anti-Slavery Society. Yes. And what that what that really got me struggling with is all of what you've said aside about Jesus, Jesus pressing us and, and coming from within, um, within God's word and within religious institutions to try to reset things. Is it possible for our institutions, for our churches to lead the way on this or does it have to happen? It, does it have to happen from some parachurch type entity? Yeah. Is awesome. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, and I'm going to put this back here just so uh, it can be easier for the camera to, to catch it. Yes. Uh, what I hear from that is uh, both the like, uh, historical importance of like how do these things actually happen as being um, really informative. Uh, to how, like, we think about what's going on right now. Um, and I really affirm, I affirm that. I think one of the things that, uh, and part of the reason I'm going back to Jesus is, uh, you know, it, it's so simple, or it's so easy for me to think about, like, the problems that Jesus were dealing with were like not as complex as our problems or like his, um, uh, his moral articulation of that was like really time bound and like we're gonna have to really dig for the kernels and those kernels are gonna be really simple and we gotta take those things and apply them to uh, what we're going through now. And the more that I look at, the closer I look at, at what Jesus was trying to confront, the more I think it is like exactly the same um, or close to it. And that is like one of the biggest hurdles um, for uh, the present problem, it's specifically about a systemic racism in America, is that it's the religious institution that is protecting it um, in lots of ways, right? It, but both from the historical standpoint. And so from the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel, the authority of the church, uh, because 
the, the, the writers meant for the, for the disciples and the apostles just to be stand in for us, um, for the church that would follow them. Uh, it was always written on those three levels, both as kind of like the historical thing, um, also the uh, representation of the apostles, and then like as the, the church that stand in for us. From the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel, the authority of the church is centrally questioned. Always, or for the longest time, has seemed like such a um, dangerous, provocative thing for the Bible to undermine itself at so many different points. And here's what I have in mind. In Amos, the prophet has God say, I hate your feasts. The sound of your music is disgusting in my ears because you have forgotten the way of justice. Here Jesus is going to a, the good, the, uh, good people in the good place, in the synagogue, and in the temple, Jesus never rejects, as we read in the scripture today, salvation comes from the Jews. Um, throughout the New Testament, uh, uh, Jesus never rejects the fundamental principles of Israel. What he does is he reinterprets what has gone wrong and orients them back to the fundamental principles of God. So the point for Jesus is that the religious institution is going to fail necessarily again and again and again. And part of our fundamental responsibility as Christians is to point out where the religious institution has failed. This is not a betrayal of our faith. It is an essential aspect of it. What's the, fun, what's the contemporary phrase? Not a bug, but a feature. Um, it, uh, the, the failing of the church isn't something that like, wow, they just messed up once and we got to, that, that is something that we, we bring with us. Anyway, so Elizabeth, that is, <laughs> um, the, the historical stuff is so important because it gives us the, 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 the granular details about how we evade responsibility as people who have committed ourselves to something like this from realizing it. And we have like the historical example of that happening. So it's really important. And for me, the, um, what I'm trying to do is draw back to those uh, essential practices of Jesus that I, that I think fit so analog analogously well for our current situation. Carrie, did you have a hand? Yeah. So the question, and yes, and this is the, thank you for pressing me on that point because that's what Elizabeth ended on and I, and I evaded <laughs> unintentionally. Um, is the institutional church not capable? Yeah. So here's where, um, uh, so here's where I see Jesus on this point, And that is he never walked away from the synagogue. He never walked away from the temple. Um, he wanted to dramatically reshape it, for sure. Um, but it was never a complete disinheritance from what he had. From what he had. Uh, and so I, I think something similar. Uh, something similar here, I think that uh, uh, 
some of the founding principles of our country line up not unintentionally with some of these core transcendent values. And so, uh, to me, one of the one of the, the the clarion call of Martin Luther King was to say, um, "I'm going to break the law where it transgresses those eternal truths." The eternal truths reign higher than how uh, we've parsed it in our legal code. Um, the other thing to say is that Jesus was never particularly, um, uh, oh, what's the fancy, um, triumphantal about his expectations. Um, uh, again and again, when Jesus gets to the apocalyptic imagery, the emphasis is always on patience. And like, I hate to say that out loud, um, but we see Jesus saying, um, preparing the apostles, preparing the church to experience failure again and again and again. Uh, I only point that out to say that Jesus was a realist about um, how difficult it would be to transform these institutions in a fundamental way that challenges the core of people's power and money. And this is why when the disciples are trying to figure out who Jesus is, the second half of the Gospel of Mark, which we like didn't get to, um, Jesus, when they're arguing about who's going to be at the right hand of God, who's going to be in the kingdom, uh, when, uh, Peter, when Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, three times Jesus uses the identity of Messiah to point not towards triumphantal reign, but towards death. Um, this is the, if you want to live your life, you must lose it. Um, if you want to follow me, you must suffer. And so in my mind, um, and then we've got time for one more question. In my mind, the realistic perspective of the way forward is to anticipate that we cannot seriously address deep systems of evil without uh, serious, serious feelings of discord and tension and frustration. Uh, even the most best well-intentioned people, I'm pointing to myself here, um, are going to be wrong about the way forward. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, survived through the, did not survive through the Holocaust, was uh, murdered by the Nazis at the end. Um, his book, Life Together, I recommend. The first chapter is amazing. And he says, everything that I believed about the church was on a wish dream of my own fulfillment. Having to submit to the community for the greater good on these things was his, his, his greatest uh, difficulty. And so, uh, necessarily, when we address these like core issues, it's going to be rocky seas. This is why Jesus greets people, I believe, always with peace. Peace be with you. He gets into the boat, he gets into the boat and he says, peace, the water's calm. Um, that's the great hope. Uh, and yet it's in tension with his willingness to address the things that are the, the most difficult. Somebody want to take the final word before we stop? Yes, Jeff.
Yes, trying to fight racism without falling into the trap of stereotypes and prejudice. Yes. Yes. But it also tends to be a little bit dehumanizing. Yes. There's this one group that they're all like this, and one group that's all like that. It's the easiest way to virtue signal, and I think counterproductive in terms of improving our quest. Thank you. Uh, two real quick thoughts. One is this is one of my criticisms of the New Testament. Um, is that uh, mostly what we get from the Pharisees is a pretty bad mischaracterization of who these people actually were for their own, the church's ideological uh, desire to crush the movement of the Pharisees. Um, and so that's not good. That's not good. Uh, the second is that um, Jesus is constantly trying to take the disciples from the virtue signaling from getting all the words right, this is true of the disciples later on, but also early on with the scribes and the Pharisees, try to get them away from the, um, you've got the right clothes on, you say the right words, you're in the right place, you must be fine, to looking at the actual material needs of people. And we need to do a lot more of that in this church, both St. Columbus, but also the broader church, which is to get over the ideological purity of our words and get to the actual feeding of people, the restoration of material need. That is what I care about. Um, and uh, that's what I think Jesus is calling us to. And that is real hard for our uh, uh, TikTok, everything's on our phone, we can get the words right and repeat them. Um, uh, Jesus wants action. And uh, that's, that's the hardest thing. And uh, typically we're controversial, and oftentimes what we do is say, instead of like trying to do that physical thing of meeting the material needs, we're gonna argue about the words. Let's not do that. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we gotta talk about the words, but we wanna get to the actual meat and bones, the actual changing of the structures. In the name of God, go in peace, thank you. I, I look forward to talking more, please.